This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, professor in gynecologic oncology and editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today we have Dr. Gabriel Mena, who is a professor of anesthesiology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. The topic of the discussion will be the role of the anesthesiologist and the integration of anesthesia in the success of an enhanced recovery program. Welcome, Dr. Mena. Um, Good morning. We have... Wanted to specifically just overall ask you about the the integration of the anesthesiologist and how important is the anesthesiologist in the success of an enhanced recovery program? Well, good morning, Dr. Ramirez. Uh, thank you for this kind invitation. And actually, um, that first question is very important because we, unfortunately, throughout decades, we've been used to work in silos in our field of expertise, and the Enhanced Recovery Program has allowed us to finally think about how do we work in collaboration with our surgical colleagues, the nurses, all placing the patient at the center of the universe to further improve outcomes in our patients. So it has been really a tremendous change in our practice where, where we don't work isolated anymore, and we decide to implement our expertise and our knowledge with the ERAS pathways at our institution. Can you give us a little bit of the uh, key elements in the preoperative and intraoperative components of an enhanced recovery programs as it pertains to anesthesia and where do you find are some of the uh, tools that are absolutely necessary uh, in the preoperative and the intraoperative uh, interventions? I think the most impactful uh, medications uh, is actually the use of multimodal analgesia. I think that before we were abusing the management of patients with opioids, excessive administration of opioids and general anesthetics, and I think the most impactful medications are the non-narcotic analgesics. So we're using preoperatively medications such as gabapentinoids, uh, weak opioids such as tramadol, um, COX-2 inhibitors, uh, peripheral nociceptor blockades such as um, Tylenol, and uh, intraoperatively, we're using regional anesthesia and specific blocks to minimize the administration of opioids in the perioperative period. We follow the same postoperatively, where now we've changed the practice and in PACU, we gave dismal doses of opioids, actually pretty much none. And we are moving away from narcotics to actually schedule non-narcotics medications as the first line of therapy for post-op pain treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, certainly one of the longstanding paradigms in, in perioperative uh, uh, management has been the nothing to eat after midnight. And, and, and certainly it has been one of the items on the enhanced recovery guidelines that has uh, faced a, a significant amount of uh, uh, barriers in implementing this regimen. As an anesthesiologist, um, Tell us your thoughts with regards to the role of um, preoperative carbohydrate loading and the principle of nothing to eat after midnight. Yes, this has been a practice that has been based on dogma over the last two, three decades, and it's impressive that still institutions across the country, anesthesiologists, are still forbidding their patients to drink or have clear liquids two hours after surgery. It is clear by the American Society of Anesthesiology, the guidelines, our patients should be allowed to drink clear liquids up to two hours before surgery unless there is a major contraindication or a patient has a risk of aspiration. We know that. Carbohydrate loading has been really 
implemented lately as actually as a way to boost the immune system and perhaps decrease the resistance to insulin, decrease thirst and anxiety, and there's plenty of data out there, which is a very beneficial solution. What it is good and anesthesiologists need to understand is that the administration of these substances and clear liquids in the context of eras have not led to an increase in the incidence of aspiration or cases of aspiration in our patient population. Yeah. And, and one of the principles of enhanced recovery, I understand, is the, um, a, a very tight control on, on fluid management around the time of uh, surgery. We often hear the term euvolemia. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that is important? Yeah, it's, that's become very important in the context of ERAS because we have clearly demonstrated in the literature that if you move away from the, that perfect state of homeostasis of euvolemia, complications occur from under and from over-administration of fluids. The problem is, how do you maintain your patients in that perfect state of eubolemia, recognizing that parameters that are called static parameters, that, such as the blood pressure, the urine output, and the heart rate are not very sensitive in letting us know which patient is going to respond or not to a fluid challenge, or if our patient is hydrated or dehydrated. So now we have at our, um, our finger points technology, great technology that allow us to minimally invasive and non-invasive capture that data very precisely, allow us to know what is the patient position in the frank styling curve, and allow us to maintain a perfect state of eubolemia throughout the entire perioperative period. Um, there is plenty of data out there that supports the, the role of, of uh, goal-directed fluid therapy outside the context of ERAS, and we have to work more inside the context of ERAS as well. You mentioned goal-directed fluid therapy. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that actually is? And is that something that can only be implemented in highly advanced anesthesia suites at tertiary cancer centers, or is it something that can be implemented in all regions of the world in uh, the practice of anesthesia? This is something that can, can actually be implemented anywhere. The important thing is that we have to move away from administering fixed fluid replacement regimens. That's all based on dogma. There is no data whatsoever that that is beneficial to our patients. We have plenty of data to support the fact that it's actually detrimental to patient outcomes. So we have to move away from mathematical formulas based on weight and thinking about the size of incision to administer fluids to a more precise, and that's what goal-directed therapy is. It is actually titrating fluids, inotropic medications, and vasoactive substances to achieve a specific physiologic endpoints of what? More important parameters of flow rather than pressure. Flow is more important as it allows us to know or infer about the delivery of oxygen to the tissues where the surgeons are operating. So what do we look at more importantly? Cardiac output, stroke volume, stroke volume variation, and these parameters have been demonstrated by optimizing this physiologically to decrease complications and improve outcomes in high-risk surgical patients undergoing major elective surgery. Another term that often comes up is the term uh, of total intravenous anesthesia. And can you tell us a little bit about what that actually is and how does this impact the outcome of the patients postoperatively? Yes, and I'm glad you asked me that question because people still get confused. And we've seen it in many institutions where TIVA is actually partially TIVA. 
TIVA stands for Total Intravenous Anesthesia, which means that the mainstay for anesthetic regimen is the administration of medications intravenously that have a specific pharmacologic effects. And why so much beneficial than volatile agents, the inhaled agents that we use traditionally for anesthetic care, they do not have any analgesic properties. They only cause amnesia. What is the difference? We use now medications such as dexmedetomidine, which is a central 2-alpha agonist, such as clonidine. We use lidocaine infusions, ketamine, NMDA, antagonist receptor, and we use propofol. All of these medications are very well known to have anti-inflammatory, anti-nociceptic, anti-allodinic properties that obviously allow us to minimize the consumption of opioids in the perioperative period and has a better impact on lessening the inflammatory response in the body. What are your thoughts on the use of intravenous lidocaine in the perioperative period? There is plenty of evidence that uh, lidocaine, um, given intravenously, produces a profound anti-inflammatory effect in animals and in non-human models. So this is a medication that is a powerful medication that be very beneficial in patients, including in the ERAS pathways. The important thing, and people forget, and it, this medication should be continued, actually, throughout the post-op period, not only stopped in the intraoperative period. And, and the benefit of um, in, in the, the intravenous anesthetics, by far there is data. We need more randomized controlled trials to compare them versus general anesthetics, but lidocaine and all these medications, and there's a study published in 2016 in anesthesiology that looked at over, over 7,000 patients, and the patients who undergo volatile anesthesia with IBPCA versus propofol lidocaine and, and remifentanil IV infusion, the patients with volatile agents, 50% mortality higher on the patient, regardless of the surgical severity, the ASA status, or whether the patient had or not intraoperative metastasis. So we need to do a lot of research in that arena because the intravenous medications such as lidocaine are going to become very beneficial, blunting the inflammatory response in ERAS patients. One of, one of the uh, more controversial items, I think, in enhanced recovery um, perioperative analgesia is the use of epidurals. What are your thoughts on uh, the use of epidural in the setting of an enhanced recovery program? Does it benefit the patient or does it delay the recovery phase? The data is clear, you know. What we've seen it and we've studied it and actually epidural, thoracic epidurals in the context of ERAS cause a delay in recovery for several reasons. One is that obviously the medications that we use in the interactional space are absorbed systemically, so we see the same opioid-related adverse events that we see from systemic administration of opioids, such as respiratory depression, constipation, urinary retention, and delay to first time of ambulation. So yes, there is a tremendous delay. The other thing that is important to recognize that even in the best of hands, there's a 20 to 30% failure rate on the epidural, which is now what patients deserve. And, um, and that's clear in the literature as well, where you have to split this epidural. So we're moving away from that traditional injection of medications in the interaxial space to more precise administration of the medication right at the level where the nerves are. And that's where the surgeons have become very important in injecting directly medications into nerves and into blocks and, and specific locations to uh, help minimize the side effects that we've seen with thoracic epidural analgesia. And then to that same point, uh, would you be able to expand for us on the impact of wound infiltration versus the transverse abdominis uh, plane block? 
uh, or the quadratus lumborum block? Where do we stand on, on these? Yes, and, and this, this depends a lot on, on the institution where you practice or whether your practice is private or academic or whether at your institution the surgeons are more involved or the anesthesiologist placing the block. So the answer to that is multifactorial. However, there is plenty of studies, meta-analysis and randomized controlled trials that have failed to demonstrate the tremendous benefits of that blocks because, again, this is an operator-dependent procedure. So the block that person A places is, can be very different than the block that play, person B places or anesthesiology B. So I think what, 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 is, what the trend is going to be now and what we're going to see more is instead of the top blocks that have been very controversial to move more to a lateral posterior approach, which is the quadratus lumborum block. And Blanco has done a lot of extensive research in this area. And the, the, the anatomical thought, and, and obviously, uh, as you see the location of this, of this injection, more posterior to the transverse abdominal plane close to the uh, psoas muscle, there is a posterior distribution of the local anesthetic to the paravertebral space, bathing actually the, the roots of L1, 2, and 3, and actually causing a dense block that would be very beneficial, and, and I think that is one of the most promising blocks. Now, if um, surgeons decide to do local infiltration of the wound, I think it's an important, that's, that's what we're doing at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I think in many centers it's what's been done. However, it's important that the surgeons inject judicious local anesthetics in the deep layers, in the dermis, and in the epidermis as well, so you can get actually the immediate benefit of the blocking the sodium channels by these local anesthetics. Well, Dr. Mena, I want to thank you for your time. This has been really very informative. Are there any um, closing comments that you would like to make from the perspective of the anesthesiologist and the integration of anesthesia and the importance of anesthesia in an enhanced recovery program? I, I think that whoever decides to implement this at their institutions, they are going to witness a paradigm shift in their practice. What we have been able to witness is that the tremendous collaboration between surgeons and anesthesiologists have allowed us to um, accelerate patient's functional recovery to even improve our satisfaction in the hospital, uh, to improve our engagement in academic endeavors and work together towards improving patient-reported outcomes. Well, Dr. Mena, thank you very much. This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Thank you for your time.